Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Conor Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is kind of a cinematic edition of this podcast. I ended up only seeing one film at the cinema that was released this week, and it's the big one of the week, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And even the one alternative programming film that was released this week, which I was interested in seeing, I'm not seeing yet, because the new film from Jafar Panahi, No Bears, is having a free screening in a couple of weeks, thanks to the nice people at the Kia Car Company who are sponsoring the Picture House cinema chains, Discover Strand. So, with the option to see that for free in a couple of weeks, I skipped that, which left me with one film to review in this episode. So, I realised that I already had a couple of reviews in the bag for films that are being released next week. So, basically, I've got a couple of preview reviews as well. Which, as it turns out, is no bad thing, because somehow next week is going to be a very, very busy week. But released next week is the film After Sun, the debut feature from new Scottish director Charlotte Wells. I saw that at another free preview at the Picturehouse Cinema last week. And I also have a review of the Costa Rican film Clara Sola, which I've already released as part of last year's Film Bath Festival special, and now a full year later it seems to be getting a legal release next week. Although by the look of it it's mostly going to be a VOD release, but I have it in the bag and as I said next week is going to be very, very busy. So A couple of sneak preview reviews for things which are coming out next week in this episode. So, in this particular podcast, I will be reviewing the gigantic film from this week, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and two smaller films from next week, After Sun and Clara Sola. And I also have a very, very lengthy new releases section for some reason there's masses of stuff coming out this week or next week that i'm interested in so yes there'll be a lot of that as well and without further ado let's get on with the reviews cinema reviews black panther wakanda forever is the latest entry in the gigantic sprawling marvel cinematic universe and is a film which quite clearly had to deal with several problems. The most obvious of which is, unfortunately, it's not Chadwick Boseman died since the last film was made, so they had to figure out how to make another one because 
you can't possibly stop. Once you start the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you cannot stop the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so it needs to roll on regardless. And there are nice tributes to Chadwick Boseman. As ever, the Marvel Studios logo that comes up at the beginning, it has clips from previous Marvel films in it. But in this case, instead of the usual thing of having lots of different characters and lots of different films, it was all Chadwick Boseman as Black Panther in both clips and stills. I mean, some of those stills, I think, were just Chadwick Boseman. And it was also coloured purple in accordance with Black Panther rather than the usual red. So that was nice. And I'm sure it wasn't too hard for the major cast members of this film in Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o and Angela Bassett to act sad when they were thinking of their dead family member slash partner. So yes, Chadwick Boseman died and they needed to figure out how to do it. And I think Ryan Coogler, who is returning as both writer and director to this film, did a decent enough job of doing it. At the start of the film, Shuri, Princess Shuri, the younger sister of T'Challa, the Black Panther, is desperately trying to resurrect the heart-shaped herb which was destroyed by Killmonger in the first Black Panther movie, and that is what gives the Black Panther his powers. But now the heart-shaped herb is no more. Wouldn't you know it? T'Challa is dying of a mysterious disease. So the scientist, the genius Princess Shuri, played by Letitia Wright, is trying to recreate the effects of the heart-shaped herb. But she fails. And a year later, she still hasn't got over it. She still hasn't fully mourned her brother. Her mother, Angela Bassett, is the queen of Wakanda and is having to fight off incursions from the outside world. Now that the world knows about Wakanda and knows about the awesome properties of vibranium, which apparently only occurs in Wakanda, everybody is desperate to get their hands on the country and its resources. Colonialism, ahoy! And now the Black Panther is dead, possibly things are open. But Angela Bassett goes into the UN and basically bitch slaps all the international politicians saying, if you come for us, we will cut you down. The Black Panther might be gone, but Wakanda lives on. And it's heavily implied that France tried to invade Wakanda and steal its resources, which is odd, making France the villain, but regardless. It turns out that the US has another option, they have created a vibranium-detecting machine, and out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, they perhaps might have found something. A giant oil rig-looking construction, which is searching for vibranium using this machine, might actually have found some. So a scientist played by Lake Bell, in a remarkably small role, I mean, 
that is too small a role for a big actress like Lake Bell to be in it. She says that it's only this one little bit that she did for her friend, Ryan Coogler. They both had films at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival, so they've been friends for a long time. But still, Lake Bell, that's a big-name actress, and you gave her that as her Marvel Cinematic Universe? I think we're going to be seeing more, or I hope we're going to be seeing more of Lake Bell in the future. But regardless, Lake Bell is a scientist who goes to this big rig in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which might have found vibranium, only for it to be overrun and attacked by blue-skinned people who come from out of the ocean. So suddenly, there's a new player in town. And as back in Wakanda, Letitia Wright and Angela Bassett are mourning their brother-slash-son, that other factor makes itself known because Namor shows up out of the water, out of the river in Wakanda, played by Tenok Huerta Mejia. He is part of an undersea kingdom, which also has its foundation on a large meteorite of vibranium. But now the surface world is actively looking for vibranium. Their undersea kingdom is under threat. And since it was Wakanda who revealed vibranium and its properties to the world, this undersea prince, Namor, is trying to strong arm the Wakandans, saying, you started this mess, you're going to help me finish this. I want to destroy the surface world for trying to destroy our undersea kingdom. And it turns out this undersea kingdom, Talokan, is not Atlantis, as it is in the comics, but a Mayan-based society just off the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And they actually speak Mayan, which is interesting. But it is now Wakanda's responsibility to try and destroy the surface world. And the first thing they need to do is uncover the scientist who created this vibranium-detecting machine. And it turns out it's a black girl genius student at MIT, Riri Williams, played by Dominique Thor who is better known in the comic books as the Iron Man adjunct character, Iron Heart. But she has created this vibranium-detecting machine, so now Namor and the Talakani want her dead, and it is Wakanda's responsibility to protect her. So they go to MIT, try and save her, get attacked by blue-skinned, Talakani, including Namora, played by Mabel Kadena, who it's awesome seeing in a major film. She was a Best Supporting Actress Honourable Mention in my Raw Footage Awards last year for the Mexican film Dance of the 31, and now she's in a Marvel movie, albeit I didn't recognise her because she's painted blue and wearing a face mask, but yeah, Mabel Kadena's in this, shout out to her. So yeah, these blue-skinned Mer people attack Princess Shuri, Riri Williams, and Okoye, played by Danai Guerrero. 
in Boston, and they take Shuri and Riri to the Undersea Kingdom. So, can they be rescued? Can the CIA agent Everett Ross, played by Martin Freeman, get involved and try and help? And can the surface world be saved from the vengeful Talokani who live under the ocean? So I've been saying for a long time that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is starting to become increasingly tiresome. It's so vast, it's so sprawling. Nowadays it involves TV series on Disney+. Plus. I mean, I'm going to have to watch Miss Marvel before The Marvel's movie next year, which really pisses me off. It's just too big, it's too complex, it's too convoluted. Yes, there are people who follow every single detail of this sprawling story with avid interest, but I'm just not one of those people. So every time I go into one of these films, it's like, oh yeah, what happened with the last one? I can't quite remember. And yeah, it's... It's an issue. But having said that, Black Panther Wakanda Forever is one of the better examples of recent vintage. I think it has a strong central premise, a strong central theme. The idea of grief and how grief affects you is powerful throughout this film. Letitia Wright is more or less the lead of this film as Princess Shuri, this genius teenager who did all the tech in the first Black Panther. I mean, she's quite possibly the most intelligent character in the MCU, even over Tony Stark. But that's also kind of her issue because she is dealing with her grief, or rather not dealing with her grief over her brother's death by sinking herself into developing all this technology. She has a very empiricist, very scientific approach to life. And using that and concentrating on that to the detriment of the spiritual side of life and of culture, particularly when, you know, they're superheroes and the superhero powers are given by this particular heart-shaped herb, which no longer exists thanks to the actions of Michael B. Jordan in the first film. Being confronted with the difference between science and faith, or mysticism, is something that Letitia Wright has to deal with, and she's portraying it really, really well. I think one of the standouts of this film is Angela Bassett, playing Queen Ramonda. I mean, she, yes, is grieving mightily over the death of her son and has had to take responsibility as reclaiming the throne of Wakanda. But she's not dealing with it very well. She bitch slaps the UN and is very, very concerned with protecting Wakanda and maintaining Wakanda's integrity, and also personally protective of her last remaining child, Letitia Wright. There's one particular scene where Angela Bassett essentially loses it. I mean, when Shuri gets kidnapped by the Talokani, she completely loses it. And basically, 
Angela Bassett gets Shakespearean on everybody's asses in this film. She will not take any shit from anybody. She uses her power, wields her power like a weapon. And it's really, really good stuff for Angela Bassett. So there's a structure which works. There's themes and patterns we recognise in this film. And the superhero trappings, the peripheral stuff, isn't quite as important as the core central themes about grief and power and resilience and trying to maintain your position against all outside forces. And having the interactions between Letitia Wright and Dominique Thorne playing Riri Williams, these two young black women who are engineering geniuses. They've got a lot in common and they play off against each other really well. I mean, Riri Williams has essentially made herself an Iron Man suit, I mean, as she did in the comics. And apparently there's going to be an Ironheart TV series starring Dominique Thor. But the suit that they come up with, I'm really, really not a fan of. It is far too heavily inspired by Japanese manga. It looks closer to Gundam Wing than it does to Iron Man, and it looks totally different than it does in the comic books. So yeah, I'm not a fan of the Ironheart suit, but apparently we're going to be getting a TV series revolving around it. But yeah, the way that these two characters interact with each other and play off against each other, I found really interesting. Uh, and yeah, there's some good stuff all around. And yes, the fight scenes, the battle scenes between these undersea Talokani and the Wakandans, and briefly against you know the CIA and special forces and all that kind of stuff. That's pretty cool. That's done well enough, at least that you know it didn't stand out. I mean, yes, as is becoming increasingly common in MCU films, some of the CGI is not good. But that's just something you're going to have to live with in modern blockbuster filmmaking. And there is an interesting villain. I mean, Namor has always been a fascinating character in the Marvel Universe. He's always been an anti-hero. Viciously fighting, viciously protecting the undersea world. I mean, in the comic books, it's Atlantis rather than this Mayan city, Talokan but viciously protecting the undersea world from the surface dwellers, and that includes, occasionally, the superheroes. You're just as likely to see Namor the Submariner as a villain in Marvel Comics as you are as a hero. And even when he is a hero, he is a reluctant hero who is only doing things for his own benefit, which happened to be, you know, quote-unquote, heroic at the time. So having this character played by Tenok Huerta, Mahia, is a fascinating direction to go. I, I think he's got very understandable goals. He takes things way, way too far, but his goals are understandable. And he has a very old-fashioned approach, or at least what I found a very old-fashioned approach. More than any villain I've seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or for that matter, in the DC Extended Universe, more than any villain I've seen, Namor 
is very fond of monologuing. You know, the kind of thing which has become a, a cliche, has become a comedic trope of comic books. The villain laying out end-to-end his plan as he has the the good guy under his control. There's a lot of monologuing from Namor in this. And he also has an attitude which I perceive, but I think might really, really piss off a certain element of MCU fandom because there are elements of this film which strongly reminded me of DC, and particularly Zack Snyder's Justice League movies and Batman vs. Superman. That speech that Ben Affleck as Batman gives, you know, if there is a 1% chance that this thing is evil, we have to take it as 100% certainty and destroy it. I mean, that's essentially what Namor's plan is. There's a slim chance that the surface world is eventually going to destroy us. So we inevitably must completely destroy the surface world. And it really, really came across like Zack Snyder's version of the DC movie. Which is completely at odds with the general ethos of the Marvel movies. But I think it's always been something that Ryan Coogler has been interested in. The first Black Panther was very much about the black experience, about colonialism and the deprivation of the black community in America. And by making this undersea kingdom not Atlantis, but this Mayan-influenced culture off the Yucatan Peninsula, that too has an element of colonialism. And the backstory that Namor gives in this giant monologue includes a heavy dose of colonial atrocities you know the spanish conquistadors in the 17th century destroying the mayan culture and that was the the trigger that first made namor this anti-hero and willing to destroy the surface world so yeah i mean making it about colonialism making it non-white i mean these are Mexican actors with darker skin tones, albeit the majority of them are painted blue. And having these characters speak the Mayan language, which apparently Tenochtitlan Mejia had to learn, and playing Namor the Submariner, he apparently also needed to learn to swim, which is odd, but he did, and he learned to speak Mayan. I believe my Kadena did. I think she spoke Mayan in Dance of the 31. But, yeah, having it about a culture which has been destroyed and using their own language. I mean, there are so many different languages used in this. I mean, there's Mayan and Spanish. There's French. There's also Wakandan. I mean, as it turns out, that's actually the Xhosa language from South Africa and Zimbabwe. Which, when I learnt that, makes sense because the character we most frequently see speaking Wakandan is Okoye, the general of the Dora Milaje, played by Danai Guerrera, who comes from Zimbabwe, or who, who has Zimbabwean parents, and Josa is one of the languages of Zimbabwe. So, yeah, the fact that she's the one who most frequently speaks in the Wakandan 
language is probably no mistake. But yeah, I mean, so many different languages. I mean, the diversity using different languages. And when a different language is used, there's a different color of the subtitles. I mean, when it's French or Spanish, it's white. When it's Josa, when the Wakandans are speaking, it's yellow. And when it's Mayan, it's blue. So you know which language each person is speaking at a specific time. And that actually really works very well. And having a situation where it's not a case of everybody's just speaking English for the convenience of the watching audience. I mean, it's becoming increasingly common that you need to read subtitles in an MCU film, which I think is a good thing and is progress along the way. But yeah, the fact that there are significant portions of this film which are in Mayan is quite cool. And having a Namor who has a darker skin tone and has this Mesoamerican background, I think is pretty cool as well. And yeah, having this the retcon of the Atlantean slash Talokan community undersea and having that culture also being based on having a vibranium meteorite falling in the ocean intertwining the two characters i mean and namor and t'challa in the comic books did have some interactions back in the 60s but intertwining these two cultures in a very specific way and having you know, the differing approaches to threats and colonialism, Namor and the Telakani saying, we shall destroy the surface world before they destroy us, whereas Shuri and Ramonda and the Wakandans saying, we need to be conciliatory. I mean, we, we do carry a stick, but that's only as a last resort. And having these two differing yet reasonably understandable approaches to surviving in the modern world, I think that's that's powerful stuff. So yeah, there's some good stuff here. It's better than the majority of the recent MCU films I've seen because it's not so dependent on knowing or understanding stuff we've already seen. It's a good way of paying tribute to Chadwick Boseman uh, and making the continuation of this branch of the MCU feel right, feel natural. It's good stuff. It's a gigantic blockbuster. It's better than the majority of the gigantic blockbusters I've seen this year. Yes, there were some pixels smashing into each other, but it wasn't so obvious as something like, say... Black Adam, which is actually still in cinemas. It's better than Black Adam. It's better than the majority of the MCU films recently. And yeah, at this point, I think that's all I can really expect from an MCU film. So yeah, for me, Black Panther Wakanda Forever is a solid, entertaining meh. Next up, we have After Sun which is a British independent feature and is the debut of Scottish writer-director Charlotte Wells. This film premiered at the Critics Week at Cannes this year and has done 
the festival circuit since then, playing at many festivals around the world to gushing reviews. It has dominated the nominations at the British Independent Film Awards and is being released this coming week. I watched this last week as part of the free screenings that Kia sponsored at the Little Theatre. I mean, I don't drive, hence me always talking about taking the bus to Bristol. I've never drived, I've never owned a car, yet I will happily shill for the Kia car company since they have provided me with several free cinema tickets at this point. But yes, it was part of the Discover preview last week at the Little Theatre Cinema, so I went along to watch it, because it was free, and because After Sun is considered something of an Oscar contender, as well as, more likely, some BAFTA and BIFA awards. But I was very interested. The film starts with a woman in her 30s, played by Celia Rawson Hall, watching an old VHS tape of her when she was 11 years old and being played by Frankie Corio on holiday in Turkey with her estranged father, Paul Mescal. And as the adult girl is reminiscing, we go back and see this holiday as it was taking place in the early 2000s, late 1990s, it looks like. The most modern song on the soundtrack, and it's got quite a a decent soundtrack, is Tender by Blur, which was in 1999. There's also Road Rage by Catatonia, which was 1998. So that's the earliest it could be. And actually, I'll probably be coming back to Tender in a minute. But yeah, so it's very early 2000s, very late 1990s. And this 11-year-old girl, Frankie Corio, is on holiday in Turkey with her father, Paul Mescal. Paul Mescal has separated from Frankie Corio's mother. He rarely sees his daughter. So spending this summer holiday with her in Turkey is a rare occasion where they're actually spending a significant amount of time with each other and as the holiday progresses Frankie Corio starts understanding a little bit of her father's personality his problems and her own awakening I mean she's 11 years old so she's too old to be playing with the kids and a little too young to be hanging out with the teenagers but she's still curious enough about you know relationships and kissing and all that kind of stuff she's starting to have those developments happening in the course of this holiday in turkey she will have a first kiss with a boy despite the fact that we see in the present day she's actually married to a woman with a baby. But yeah, it's the in-between times, not quite a child, not quite an adult, somewhere in between and starting to understand your place in the world. And exploring this through this holiday in Turkey in the late 90s. 
So, as I said, I, I was very, very keen on seeing this film. I mean, the praise this film has been getting has been absolutely gushing. There are critics who have been falling over themselves to praise this film, say it's a masterpiece and all this kind of stuff. So I did want to check it out, but honestly, I don't get it. I think this film is far too subtle for its own good. It's far too ambiguous for its own good. I'm really not sure what I'm supposed to be taking out of it. I was sitting in this screening and I was thinking, okay, I get the setup. I mean, this adult woman, Celia Rawson Hall, is being reminded of this holiday when she was 11 years old in Turkey with her father. So there must be something here which happens, you know, some incident, some understanding, some development of some kind. I was sitting there thinking, okay, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Surely something's going to happen. I mean, we're sitting here. They made a film about it. Surely there's actually going to be something here to talk about, something to discuss. I mean, I had so many options going through my mind of potentially what was going on with Paul Mescal, because you know, there's, there's little hints here and there that all is not as it seems with this guy. I mean, is he a recovering addict? Is he a scam artist? I mean, he definitely seems to be going across the road to the richer hotel than the one he's booked to you know, take advantage of their facilities. But is he, you know, a con artist? Is he a, a wheeler dealer in that kind of way? Is he even terminally ill? Is this an opportunity to tell his daughter, I'm dying? Is he simply an irresponsible layabout who is having to put up with this two weeks with his 11-year-old daughter and he's just going to abandon her at the end of this holiday? Is this even going to turn into a story about sexual abuse? That was certainly a possibility. And when that song Tender by Blur is playing, the way that scene plays out, the song Tender starts really, really slowing down and stretching out. I mean, I'm just, you've probably heard the song Tender. It's pretty slow as is. But in the film, in the soundtrack, it starts slowing down and slowing down and lengthening and distorting and we see a closed door, the closed hotel door of Frankie Corio and Paul Mascal, and it, 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 as it zooms out, as it falls away. So I'm thinking, hang on a minute, is this a story about sexual abuse? I mean, that's the kind of motifs you would use if it was. But I don't think that's what this story is about, and honestly, I'm really not sure what this story is about. I mean, it's clearly a story about reminiscing. It's a story about the past. It's a story about understanding the past and dealing with the past. Because the opening scene of the film is Celia Rawson Hall in a nightclub with sort of strobe lights. I mean, flashes of imagery. We see her in brief moments of light. And we see her in this dance club. We see her look across the dance floor. And that is seemingly what sparks her the next morning to go and dig out this old VHS tape of this holiday in Turkey. And, yeah, I mean, that's a, a decent enough structure, but the thing is, 
we don't go back to Celia Rawson Hall enough. The overwhelming majority of the times we see the adult Frankie Corio in Celia Rawson Hall is these brief flashes in the dance club, and that's just not enough. We don't understand, or at least I didn't understand, what we are supposed to be getting out of this, what has sparked these reminiscences. I mean, by the end of the film, you, you kind of see what something has happened that sparked memories of her father. But it's not made clear because it's all done in this abstract, flashing light kind of way with just a second of image and then darkness, second of image and darkness in this dance club. So I'm really not sure how I'm supposed to deal with that, how I'm supposed to approach that, and what this story is trying to tell me, because there's clearly a distance between Paul Mascal and his daughter Frankie Corio. There's clearly things going on in the background, but they're never really dealt with properly. I mean, sure, you can say that it's an 11-year-old girl observing these things, so she doesn't understand fully what's going on. But I think as a filmmaker, Charlotte Wells missed the trick because, yes, the 11-year-old girl doesn't necessarily understand what's going on. But I think we as an audience who are sitting down and watching this feature-length film, we should understand what's going on. We should understand what we're trying to be taking out of this. And for me, I just wasn't. This is a film where nothing happens, and a film where nothing happens in a bad way. I mean, I'm going to be talking in my Film Bath Festival special about a couple of films where, you know, nothing happens. And yeah, one of them, nothing happens in a bad way. But it can be done where nothing happens, but everything happens. And that is not how I found it in Aftersun. Essentially, this is a film with too many mysteries and not enough answers for my personal taste. I think it is a good coming-of-age story in a limited way. I mean, I don't think that's truly what this film is, you know, quote-unquote, about, but it still functions quite well as a coming-of-age story. That transitional point, that moment where you stop really becoming a child uh, and become an adult. I mean, the fact that you have your first kiss with a boy in this period. And that scene is handled very, very nicely. I mean, the the naturalism, the awkwardness, and the eventual, well, let's just do it. I mean, it, it was actually done very, very well. And the other scenes, I mean, the scenes where Frankie Corio, she knows she's too old for the little kids. So she tries hanging out with the teenagers who are, you know, actually old enough to drink. So she's just sitting in the corner as everybody around her is getting louder and louder. But she knows, actually maybe I shouldn't be doing this, so she's just sitting there, she's not drinking, she's not joining in, but she still feels like she needs to be part of it. She kind of is, I mean, even though these kids are 16, 17, 18 years old, they include her to some degree, I mean, she is treated very kindly by one of the older girls. She is kind of part of the group, but equally, definitely not. And Again, those scenes are handled very, very well, that transitional moment of an 11-year-old girl kind of growing up so yeah as a coming of age movie i think this does work but that is such a small part of the film compared to the very very ambiguous ambivalent relationship that frankie corio has with paul mescal that i just really don't know what i'm supposed to be taking out of this so yeah 
Critics have been raving about this film after Sun. And to some degree, I think I get it. But honestly, I didn't find anything truly special, truly interesting in this film. It was not a film which grabbed me. It was not a film which provoked thoughts or emotion or made me contemplate my place in the existence or whatever. It was not much, honestly. So yeah, I think it's safe to say that I didn't get much out of After Sun, but I absolutely understand this will be a film, and I can see that this will be a film that some people will manage to get a lot out of. And if you might want that kind of experience, After Sun is available this coming weekend in the cinemas, and for me it is a pretty low, pretty ambivalent meh. And finally we come to Clara Sola, the Costa Rican film that was submitted to last year's International Feature Oscar race, and I saw at last year's Film Bath Festival. But now, this coming weekend, it is being given a proper legal release here in the UK by the awesome distribution company Peccadillo Pictures. It seems like this will primarily be a VOD release, although it is advertised as having cinema releases as well. Just not anywhere in my region that I can get to. So it's most likely you will find this film on VOD platforms. But since I have the review already in the can from last year's Film Bar Festival special, I will replay that for you now, and you can make your own decision about Clarisola. So here is a clip out of my Film Bath Festival 2021 special podcast, reviewing Clara Sola. Archive start. And the first film I saw on the final day of the Film Bath Festival was Clara Sola a Costa Rican film, or at least a film set in Costa Rica, by director Natalie Alvarez-Mazan, who grew up in both Costa Rica and Sweden, and even as Costa Rica submitted this to the International Film Oscar, it was also on the shortlist for Sweden's submission to the International Film Oscar. As far as I'm aware, Natalie Alvarez-Mersen is now based in Sweden, but she does have background in both countries. And she set her debut feature-length film in Costa Rica, in a remote rainforest region of Costa Rica, where Clara, played by Wendy Chinchilla Araya, is a 40-something woman living in a very, very repressive environment. She lives in a remote cottage in the rainforest with her mother and her orphaned niece. One of the ways that this family gets by is by holding healing sessions, because It is the belief of Clara's mother 
that Clara has a gift of healing. This is probably due to the fact that Clara suffers from scoliosis. She has a curvature of the spine. She's a hunchback, essentially. And maybe because of this, she is considered special. She is considered holy. So people come to her for healing. And that's one of the ways that this family makes money. These sessions are resented by Clara, and this is considered the only thing she is good for. She is specifically denied access to the wider world. There are barriers in place. Her mother has tied purple ribbons around certain trees. Look, you cannot go past the purple ribbons. And this is something that Clara absolutely adheres to, despite the fact she deeply resents it and she's close to 40. But things start to change. One of the other ways that this small family makes money is by hiring out a white horse that they have acquired to a local man who runs tours for the tourists. And this is the only true connection that Clara has. She loves this white horse and looks after it when it comes back from these tourist tracks. But one day, a new, handsome young man shows up as the nephew of the guy who rents the horse, and he is now going to be picking up the white horse. And suddenly, and possibly for the first time, this detached woman has rumblings of a sexual awakening. But things are complicated. This handsome young man is probably a little bit too young for her and is into her teenage niece anyway. And in order to pay for the niece's quinceañera, her 15th birthday party, a very important rite of passage for Latinas, the horse might well be sold. And this might well be the impetus for Clara to finally get some self-determination and actually stand up for herself. But can she do it in this incredibly repressive, matriarchal environment? There are some really interesting elements to Clara Solar. This is a film about liberation, about sexual awakening, about resentment, about religion, about coming away from a very restrictive, a very religious environment. Reading between the lines, it doesn't seem that Clara actually believes she has healing hands, but this is what she does in the family. It's a repeated mantra of Clara that her mother says, everybody must contribute, everybody must raise money, and your thing is you're the healer. People come, they pay money, they get healed. And that's all she does, that's all she's allowed to do. She is so quiet, so reserved, and has this mild disability that 
she is a very strange woman. Despite being close to 40, she is somewhat naive and somewhat innocent. Apparently, originally in the script, Natalie Alvarez Mazan wanted a younger woman, but then came across Wendy Chinchilla Araya and cast her because she has a background as a dancer. In fact, all the cast of this film are non-professionals, or at least non-professional actors. The only one who had stage experience was Wendy Chinchilla Araya, and that was only as a dancer. And when you are manifesting a curvature of the spine, having a dancer's body probably helps. But anyway, this is a 40-ish woman who has been incredibly repressed and is finally maybe starting to break out of that. But there's other stuff going on as well. The forces of nature are palpable in this film, to the extent that there's a heavy element of magic realism here. There's a heavy level of mysticism here. There are signposts along the way that there is a connection to the natural world, a connection to nature. I mean, more than anything, Clara is connected to this white horse. But there's a scene where she's holding a handful of unripe berries and the camera pans up and when it pans down again, the berries have ripened. When she has what seems to be her absolute first sexual awakening, she is surrounded by fireflies. When she has her first kiss, instantly the sun shines through the clouds. And towards the end of the film, she has an emotional outburst at her niece's quinceañera, and there's an earthquake. (laughs) I mean, earthquakes do happen in Costa Rica and Central America. But there definitely seems to be some kind of force of nature here. I mean, Clara herself, maybe, is a force of nature. But she's this very strange, very detached woman. I mean, is she educationally challenged? Or is it simply a situation that nobody bothered to educate her? She is this very restrictive, very repressed situation. I mean, we cannot go past the purple ribbons. You only interact with the horse. The only time we see her leave this compound in the Costa Rican rainforest is for a hospital appointment. And the doctor says to Clara's mother, look, the time has come. The corsets you've been using just don't work anymore. We need to fix your daughter's spine. We can do it. I mean, it will be free. Your insurance will cover it. You can have a better quality of life for your daughter. And the mother refuses because, I I guess in her mind, if the mild disability is fixed, then the healing will stop. She is special and therefore she is holy. And if you are fixed into some semblance of normalcy, nobody will want to come and be healed by the mystical, mildly disabled woman. So her mother is actively harming her quality of life in myriad, multiple ways. And this is the point at which she is starting to break free or or starting to contemplate breaking free. Yes, through interactions with this handsome younger man who is 
somewhat courting the teenage niece. But there is clearly attraction there on Clara's part, possibly also on the, the man's part. The guy certainly feels sympathy for Clara, can see how repressed she is. And because there are preparations going on for this quinceañera, one of the recurring motifs of the film is a bright blue dress. In fact, it's in the majority of the publicity shots surrounding this film, is this woman, Clara, wearing this bright electric blue dress, which is intended for her niece's quinceañera. But she becomes obsessed with it. You know, why can't I have pretty things? Why didn't I have a quinceañera? I mean, that's not outright said, but the assumption is she never had a quinceañera because she's special. But she's starting to resent her environment and starting to realise how restrictive her environment is. So she becomes obsessed with this dress. And that causes problems in and of itself. And I did find it interesting. I can't say for sure, but I'm pretty sure that some of the score of this film is either Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty or heavily inspired by Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty, which in turn was used for the Disney animated film in the 50s. So, I mean, this blue dress, I mean, being awakened and the music, I think, I'm pretty sure, was Sleeping Beauty. So, yeah, that was, I think, a, a very subtle way of introducing extra elements into the film. But yeah, it, it's a really fascinating film. I mean, ultimately, the one-line hook that I can say for this film is this is Carrie if Carrie was a nature spirit. I mean, it's not quite as extravagant as Carrie, but the climax at this quinceañera is the dramatic and the emotional heart of the film. And the very, very final scene is somewhat triumphant, I would say, but if you took it literally, I actually kind of think it might be a tragedy. It was a somewhat similar reaction I had to the final scene of the Netflix Mexican film Tragic Jungle, which I reviewed a couple of months ago. But yeah, I mean, there is some triumph there, there is some self-determination there, but there is also... I think a hint of tragedy, a, a core of tragedy to this entire situation and this entire film, even by the end of the film, I can't help feeling there's a tiny bit of tragedy still there. And I think that is important. I think this is, yes, a woman fighting for her own identity, fighting for her freedom, but how much freedom and how much self-expression is there actually out there for her to get? But it's fascinating. I think Wendy Chinchilla Araya is a brilliant central performance in this, particularly for somebody who's never acted before. But her expression, I mean, the physicality of acting like she's got scoliosis, 
but also the emotion of this. I mean, the the very detached, very reserved person who's just not been able to interact with the world and finds it difficult to do so when that opportunity presents itself. She, I think, is brilliant. I think it's an excellent, excellent central performance of Wendy Chinchilla Araya, and I think this is an excellent film. It's one of those films that is light on dramatic incident, but heavy in symbolism, heavy in philosophy. It's a film to ponder, not to stuff your face with popcorn with. But I found it absolutely compelling and thrilling, and I do really recommend it. At time of recording, once again, it doesn't look like Clara Sola has a UK release date, but when it does come out, I thoroughly recommend it. I really like this film, and for me, Clara Sola is a yay. Archive finish. So yeah, I think it's safe to say I really, really liked Clara Sola. And one thing I would add to that review I recorded over a year ago now. (laughs) At the time I recorded that review, I had not yet watched the Disney animated film Encanto. Now, it might sound very strange for me to bring up the Disney film Encanto, which is awesome, so many songs, Under Pressure really should have been nominated for the Oscar and won Best Original Song. But regardless, I hadn't seen Encanto when I recorded that. As now I have, I can safely say that Clara Sola, this Swedish Costa Rican art house film, has many of the same plot beats as Encanto. It's set in a magic realist rainforest in Latin America. It has a domineering matriarch who insists that everybody must be useful in order to maintain their life in this community. There is somebody breaking free, breaking out of the strictures that have been placed upon them, finding their own abilities for themselves rather than agreeing to what other people have given to them, and basically being a portrait of a toxic family situation. When I saw Encanto, and pretty soon afterwards, I started thinking, hang on a minute, that's actually basically the same plot as Clara Sola. So yeah, I think one of the many, 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 many videos I'm planning is a comparison of Encanto and Clara Sola, which will maybe be put on my YouTube channel, which is somewhat fallow at the moment. But yeah, if and when you do see Clara Sola, have that in your mind, because I was surprised how many parallels I found between Encanto and Clara Sola. But regardless of anything else, I do think it's a really, really good film. And hopefully you will be able to find this either cinematically or through streaming platforms. But however you do find it, I really, really like Clarasola. And for me, it is a definite yay. New releases. For some reason, there is a lot of new releases this week, which I want to add to the list. I mean. I can't remember ever having a list this large of films I wanted to add to the list. 
And of course, it also coincides with the fact that I'm still working on my Film Bath Festival special and the Africa Eye Festival special podcasts as well. So, yeah, I'm going to be insanely busy for the next few weeks. But anyway, cinematically, we start with a delayed cinematic release. The Chinese film Return to Dust, which was released a couple of weeks ago, but I delayed watching because... There's a free Kia preview screening of it at the Little Theatre, so if you can watch it for free, why not? Return to Dust tells the story of a couple of Japanese peasant farmers who are more or less unwanted by their families and are pushed together, but they make their small little farm work until eventually a government initiative means they have to move off the land and move to the big city, or it, it seems like. That is the direction the film goes in. But yes, it looks interesting, or certainly interesting enough, that given the opportunity to see it for free, I will be checking out the Chinese film Return to Dust. And as for the new cinematic releases this week, we still have Black Panther Wakanda Forever taking up most of the oxygen at the multiplex, and we still also have Black Adam getting its fair share of the multiplex market. So There's not a great deal out, but all that is out I am interested in watching. Perhaps the biggest new release this week is The Menu, which is a film starring Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicholas Holt as a young couple who go to an incredibly expensive, incredibly exclusive restaurant on an island where they will be given a lavish and monstrously expensive banquet by chef Rafe Fiennes. But, at least judging by the trailer, Rafe Fiennes has his own agenda and maybe has brought these specific people to this specific island at this specific time for a reason. There might even be a most dangerous game thing going on with Rafe Fiennes and his staff hunting his customers, or at least that looks like what's going on in the trailer, but Either way, it looks fascinating, so I do want to check out the menu. There's also another somewhat Oscar-baity film called Armageddon Time released this week, which is a coming-of-age story by writer-director James Gray, who is one of those interesting directors who seems to be somewhere on the borderline between respected art house name and hack for hire, but His latest film does seem to have been given a lot of attention. It is set in, I think, the 1950s, I think, in Baltimore, where an immigrant family, I think they're Jewish, have to deal with the American dream, the immigrant experience, and what happens when the young boy in this family maybe wants to be friends with a little black boy, and that is not approved of by the people around him. I mean, it's got an excellent cast. Anne Hathaway, Anthony Hopkins, Jeremy Strong, Jessica Chastain. There's some really good people in this film. So, yeah, it does have some Oscar buzz to it, and I do want to check out Armageddon Time at the cinema this week. And the fun cinematic release this week is Confess Fletch, 
with John Hamm taking over the Fletch mantle from Chevy Chase, who did a couple of movies in the 80s, based on a series of successful novels starring this character Fletch. But now John Hamm is the cynical, world-weary journalist who repeatedly gets caught up in murder plots. And this one is no exception, with going to Italy in order to try and retrieve some expensive paintings. He comes back home and finds a dead girl in his apartment. So, of course, he's instantly suspected, and capers ensue. So, yeah, John Hamm's a charming enough actor, and what I remember of Fletch, I mean, I haven't seen the film Fletch for a very, very long time. I don't think I've ever seen Fletch Lives, the sequel. But I remember enjoying it via when I was a kid. So, yeah, a new Fletch film starring John Hamm seems like a really cool idea. So I do want to check that out. And there's a lot of stuff which intrigues me, which has been released onto VOD platforms this week. The most exciting is Final Cut. This is a remake of one of my favourite films of recent years, One Cut of the Dead, made by the Oscar-winning director Michel Hazanovicius. A French remake of the zombie comedy One Cut of the Dead by Michel Hazanovicius. That sounds awesome! And it's being released onto VOD this week. I mean, One Cut of the Dead, I absolutely loved. It's a 90-odd-ish minute movie. The first 30 minutes of it is a one-take zombie movie. There's lots of mistakes happening. There's lots of things going on. It's pretty chaotic. And then the final two-thirds of the film is the making of this one-take movie. And I loved, loved, loved One Cut of the Dead. I thought it was so inventive, so funny, so clever. I really hope more people get to see One Cut of the Dead. And now it's been remade by Michel Hazanovicius in France, with his frequent collaborator Berenice Bejo as the female lead, and Romain Duris, a very talented French actor, as the male lead. So, yeah, I am dying to see Final Cut. I mean, I think that's shot to the top of my streaming VOD watching list, even though I've still got a couple of things on my tablet, which I'll be talking about in a bit. But yes, Final Cut, I am really, really eager to see. A film I'm kind of eager to see is a Mexican film called The Box. It is directed by the Venezuelan director Lorenzo Vigas, who a couple of years ago did the absolutely brilliant From Afar, but that was a very harrowing film. I mean, the lead actor of From Afar, Alfredo Castro, I gave my best actor to in my Raw Footage Awards that year. I was very, very impressed with From Afar. But it was pretty hard going, so I think I want to approach the box with caution because it does look kind of hard going as well. It is set in Mexico, but because the Venezuelan director Lorenzo Vigas directed it, Venezuela has submitted it to the Oscars this year. But a young Mexican boy 
travels across the country to pick up the remains of his estranged father, who has apparently died in an industrial accident. I think that's what's going on. But once there, he becomes convinced that a stranger he meets on the streets is actually his father. And alongside this, he also gets involved in a scam, in a scheme, to get low-paid workers for giant factories to exploit. So, yeah, could be rather heavy going, but Lorenzo Vigas is a director I respect, and as I said, it has been submitted to the Oscars. I think it's got a reasonable chance of getting on the 15 film long list, so I probably will check out The Box, which primarily seems to have been released onto Mubi.com, but I have seen it elsewhere, so I'm going to have to investigate, see how I can get access to The Box, but that has been added to the list. As has another entry into the International Feature Oscar, albeit this one was last year's, Hungarian entry to the Oscars, and it's an outright horror film called Post Mortem. It always surprises me when a genre piece gets submitted to the Oscars, albeit this one does seem like it has a point to it. It is an elevated horror movie. It's about a photographer in 1918 who goes around Hungary taking post-mortem photographs. I mean, this used to be very, very popular in the Victorian era. I mean, the average person couldn't afford a photograph, so quite often, as a, a last memento, you would take a picture of a dead person, and that was your memento mori. I mean, it's kind of a, a morbid thing, but this was very, very popular. And apparently it was still popular after 1918, but this Hungarian photographer is going around doing this. But this is the wake of the First World War, in the height of the Spanish flu epidemic. And he gets invited to an abandoned village in order to take photographs of all the, the dead people in this village. And then spooky shit starts going down. And judging by the trailer, some really spooky shit starts going down. So, yeah, that looks like an outright horror film. And I'm somewhat curious. I mean, it was submitted by Hungary last year. So, yeah, maybe I'll be checking out Postmortem as well. Another VOD release this week is another one of those micro-budget films where a group of people just got access to a mansion and made a film together. It's called Most Horrible Things, or at least here in the UK it's known as Most Horrible Things. In the States, it seems to have been given the much, much more generic title Love Hurts. But either way, this is a micro-budget film about a group of six strangers who have been invited to a Valentine's Day blind date dinner at this big mansion with the prospect of a large cash payment for anybody who survives the night. And creepy shit starts going down, and judging by the trailer, most of the people at this dinner party end up dead. So, yeah, an interesting premise, an interesting setup. I mean, arguably a, a somewhat generic setup, but as I always say, I am fascinated by this kind of micro-budget filmmaking. I mean, digging through the dross, digging through the dirt, 
I mean, sometimes you come across some absolute howlers. I mean, like in the last episode, I reviewed Summer Issues, which was not good. But equally, I reviewed the film Val, which does seem to have quite similar vibes to this film, Most Horrible Thing. So I do want to check it out. I do want to find those undiscovered gems, those rough cut diamonds in the VOD realm. And Most Horrible Things looks interesting enough. As does Soft and Quiet, another VOD-released film, also done on a very low-budget way, but in a slightly different way. It, it claims to be shot in real time, and it looks like a very naturalistic, almost documentary approach, as a group of white women gather together and start having discussions. And when they say, all right, let's get some drinks and move it into your home. An altercation happens and things start getting violent, things start getting bloody. And reading between the lines, I think that Soft and Quiet might be a film about racism and white entitlement. I mean, basically, it looks like this is a group of Karens who start getting violent so yeah soft and quiet sounds like a very very intriguing film and that has been added to the vod list and also on streaming platforms there is the russian film no looking back now i think given the current state of the world it is completely acceptable to reject all ideas of supporting financially a russian but Kirill Sokolov, the director of No Looking Back, has made public statements against the war in Ukraine, and he also directed the excellent, very violent, but very funny black comedy Why Don't You Just Die a couple of years ago, which I really did like. And his follow-up is a film called No Looking Back, in which a young woman is just out of prison and all she wants to do is reunite with her 10-ish-year-old daughter, but her grandmother will not let this lie, and it becomes a violent chase as this ex-con and her daughter try to escape the violent members of her own family. So yeah, that has the potential to be really cool, particularly since it is Kirill Sokolov, and I really did like Why Don't You Just Die? So yeah, that has also been added to the VOD list. On Netflix, we have another very oscar baity film. It is directed by the Chilean director Sebastian Lelio, but this is an English-language film starring Florence Pugh called The Wonder. It is set in Ireland in the mid-19th century, where an English nurse played by Florence Pugh has been sent by the newspapers to rural Ireland to investigate claims that there is an 11-year-old girl in Ireland who has stopped eating and yet is perfectly healthy a month later. So is this a divine miracle, you know, this girl is surviving on manna from heaven, or is there a scientific explanation for it? And the sceptic, the nurse, Florence Pugh, has to investigate and gets drawn into the local community and their religious faith and yeah that has the potential to be very very interesting particularly since Sebastian Lelio is a very talented director who did things like 
Gloria and Gloria Bell. So yeah, I do want to check that out. There's also a kids movie being released called Slumberland, in which a young girl explores the world of dreams, Slumberland, with the eccentric guidance of Jason Momoa playing in a kids movie, which is a little bit weird, as this young girl is trying to find and reconnect with her father in the world of dreams. So, yeah, that looks like a pretty typical kids movie, but I'm curious about Jason Momoa being in it, but I've got so much else to get to, I probably won't ever get to Slumberland, but it does interest me. That's somewhat similar for the latest Hallmark-esque Christmas movie that Netflix have released called Christmas With You, in which a burnt-out musician is looking for inspiration and hears of a young girl who's written a song, so goes to this small hometown and connects with this young fan and her very handsome and very available father. It actually sounds a little bit similar to that British Christmas movie from last year starring Helena Zengel, A Christmas Number One. Netflix has started doing a lot of these family-friendly, safe Christmas movies, and this is another example of that. So if I feel the need for something brainless, I might end up watching Christmas With You. And at a very, very different end of the Netflix spectrum, there is also the documentary I Am Vanessa Guillen, which is about a soldier in America who was getting sexually harassed in Fort Hood in Texas. And apparently there was a lot of that kind of thing going on in Fort Hood. And then Vanessa Guillen disappeared. And it was strongly suspected that one of her fellow soldiers did away with her, and her family started a protest movement, trying to highlight the fact that time and time and time again, this kind of behaviour was being covered up by the US military, particularly in Fort Hood in Texas. And the hashtag I am Vanessa Guillen started trending at the behest of Vanessa Guillen's family. And This is a documentary about that situation, which sounds really depressing, but also kind of interesting. So that has been added to the Netflix list as well. On Amazon Prime this week, we have The People We Hate at the Wedding, which is a raunchy comedy with a surprisingly good cast. It's got Alison Janney, Ben Platt, and Kristen Bell as a mother and her children who are invited to the wedding of Ben Plass and Kristen Bell's half-sister, who have long been estranged. And they never got over the breakup of Alice and Johnny's marriage and he went off with another person, yet they've been invited to this wedding and start causing chaos. And they start to realise that, you know, those people that you want to avoid, the people who are making too much of a scene at the wedding, we're the people you hate at the wedding. And yeah, it looks like uh, a very broad, very spiky comedy. So yeah, looks interesting enough. And I'll probably check out people we hate at the wedding at some point once I've got through all the, all the Oscar Beatty stuff. 
one thing I would like to get to, but probably won't ever have the chance, is the Disney Plus released film Disenchanted, which is a long-awaited sequel to the Disney live-action film Enchanted. I mean, 15 years after the original (laughs) Enchanted with Amy Adams as a Disney-style princess who goes to the real world and falls in love with a Manhattan lawyer. And now, 15 years down the line, what's changed, what's different? And you know, more things from the magical realm starting to come along. So yeah, I mean, Enchanted is a charming little film. I mean, I remember liking it enough when I was younger. But now they've made a sequel. I mean, it's kind of like Hocus Pocus 2. I mean, so long after the original, and yet because we need content for Disney Plus, they made it. But I am actually rather intrigued by Disenchanted, and I would kind of like to see it, but it's going to be a long, long way down the list. There's yet another film released onto Sky Cinema this week. And it's actually another film starring Letitia Wright from Black Panther Wakanda Forever. This is an Irish film called Aisha, and Letitia Wright plays an asylum seeker from Nigeria who is stuck in the never-ending asylum system in Ireland. And she strikes up a friendship, a bond, with someone who works at the detention centre played by Josh O'Connor. And things apparently do not go well at least judging by the trailer so yeah a a film a low-key film about the immigrants experience which i think could be rather interesting and that has been added to the list on sky cinema and finally of the new releases we have blood relatives which is another film which is being released onto shudder.com this week and looks kind of interesting it's about a jewish vampire who travels around the back roads in the south of the united states you know always keeping under the radar doing just enough to survive but never enough to actually get caught or you know have a van helsing type come up to him but suddenly one day a young woman approaches him and says, you're my father, which kind of rocks this loner vampire, but they set off on a road trip together, and yeah, that sounds fascinating. There's a lot of different things going on in that synopsis, so I do want to check out Blood Relatives, even though my list is extraordinarily long at the moment, but regardless. Out of all those things, in the next cinematic episode of this podcast, which will probably be after the Film Bath Festival special and the Africa Eye Festival special, but in the next cinematic episode, I will be reviewing the re- Chinese film Return to Dust, The Menu, Armageddon Time, and Confess Fletch. The Two Watch List My to-watch list is almost exclusively made up of Oscar-baity type films I need to tick off the list. The exceptions are the films I've downloaded onto my tablet, 
and even one of them is an Oscar submission. The Australian international feature Oscar submission, You Won't Be Alone, made by an Australian-based Macedonian director who made this film in the Macedonian language about a witch who takes the bodies of young women and lives for centuries. Some of those young women being played by people like Alice Englert, Naomi Rapace and Anna Maria Marinka. So yeah, that's uh, an intriguing film. There's also the film Baby Assassins, in which two Japanese teenage girls live with each other, hate each other, different personalities, odd couple type situation. Yet they're also teenage assassins, which sounds like it could be fun. And finally, released at a standard price on streaming platforms, is Orphan First Kill. The long-awaited sequel slash prequel of Orphan, with the same cast, including the awesome Isabel Furman. Quite how she's going to pull that off, I do not know, given that it's, what, 20-odd years since she played a girl in the first Orphan. I mean, obviously, it's more complicated than that if you know the twist of Orphan. But, yeah, I really love Isabel Furman. She was awesome in The Novice. She was excellent in a supporting role in The Last Thing Mary Saw, a Shudder film I saw at the beginning of the year. So, yeah, I'm really, really curious if Isabel Furman can pull it off. I think she can. But the fact that they've made a sequel so long after the fact, and it's a prequel with the same actress playing a girl. I'm curious, and I do definitely want to check out Orphan First Kill. So on the oscar Beatty front, my Netflix highest priorities are all quiet on the Western front, the prestige German Oscar submission, based on the classic German novel, and seemingly one of the frontrunners to be nominated for International Feature Oscar this year. And there's also My Father's Dragon, the latest animation from Cartoon Saloon, and Nora Twomey, the director of The Breadwinner, about a young boy's relationship with a dragon he finds on an island off the coast of Ireland. So yeah, I I love Cartoon Saloon and can't wait to check out that latest animated feature. On Apple TV+, Plus, there's the film Causeway, which is very Oscar-baity. Jennifer Lawrence stars as a military veteran suffering from a traumatic brain injury and trying to fit back into civilian life in New Orleans. On Amazon Prime Video, we have the Argentinian International Oscar submission, Argentina 1985, about the lawyers who tried to bring the military junta to justice in Argentina. And also on Amazon Prime Video, there's My Policeman, about a love triangle between a gay policeman who has to be closeted in the 1960s, but This has repercussions for the present day as the three people at the centre of this triangle all reunite. So that could be an interesting film about hiding your true self and all that kind of stuff. And added to the list simply because they're on my Skybox and I could watch them for free and with no extra effort. There's the Comedy Central original movie, Cursed Friends, which was released around Halloween, 
in which various people, including Will Arnett, gather together in their 30s for a Halloween party, only to discover that the child's game they played in the past, a mischievous witch, has made all their predictions come true. And these are very weird and very inappropriate predictions. So that could be funny. And there's also Poker Face, a film starring and directed by Russell Crowe, in which a billionaire played by Russell Crowe invites people around for a very high stakes game of poker. And amongst those stakes are the secrets of the people he has invited. And then there's a home invasion. So, yeah, whether or not the home invasion was possible or not, I'm not sure. But either way, sounds like it could be interesting. And Russell Crowe directs so infrequently that when he does, maybe we should pay attention to it. So, yeah, I do want to check out Poker Face, which has been released onto Sky Cinema. So that is my current top list of priorities. but. I'm not sure how many of those I'll get to in the next week or so, because I still need to finish those film festival special episodes, and those will be the next things in the feed, most likely. So, yeah. I'm not sure that list is going to change within the next few episodes, but that is the list, nonetheless. The Ace. There was one yay in this particular episode which you will be able to see this coming week, most likely on VOD platforms, but apparently it's getting a cinematic release. Clara Solar is awesome. It's one of those films I'm going to be promoting and talking about as much as possible, because given its subject matter and given how small a release it's being given, I'm not sure how many people will actually know this film even exists. But its story about this repressed, marginalised woman in her 40s finally finding some self-expression, finally tapping into her nature spirit potential, or that seems to be what's going on, is really powerful to see. It's very well acted by Wendy Chinchia Araya. Brilliantly directed by Natalie Alvarez Mazan. And yeah, I think it's really fascinating, particularly when you realise just how close to Encanto it actually is. So yeah, basically, Clara Sola is Carrie if Carrie was a nature spirit and wasn't quite so violent. But yeah, it's it's really good stuff, and I do strongly recommend Clara Sola. And it is a yay. So the next things in this feed will be the festival specials. I'll start out with my Film Bath festival special for 2022, where I will be reviewing, I think it was six films I ended up seeing at the Film Bath festival. So yeah, that will be coming hopefully pretty quickly. And I can follow up with the Africa Eye film festival special which will be a lot shorter because I only saw a couple of films there. But the next thing in the feed will most likely be the Film Bath Festival special, and I've also got those cinematic films to get to as well. So busy, 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 but that is how I like it. But 
that is the end of this particular show and all that remains for me to say is this has been yay nay or Mare presented by the raw footage podcast i've been host conor gaisley coming to you from bath in the southwest of england email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod and i will see you next time where i shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure ah!